a few weeks ago when we looked at verses 1 through 16, he began by telling his readers that he, desired, he had desired to write to them concerning their common salvation. But instead, he had found it necessary to write to them to contend for the faith. Because false teachers had been creeping into the church unnoticed, and Jude was giving these believers the different characteristics of these false teachers so that the church would be able to recognize them when they saw them. And he admonishes these believers to hold fast to the truth of God's word, to not be led astray by these false teachers who live lives of immorality and who deny that Jesus Christ is master and Lord. So as we turn our attention to these final few verses in 17 through 25, we're going to see Jude calling the church to persevere until Christ's returning by resisting these false teachers and by following the truth of the gospel. Jude is going to give us three different points of application this morning. The first is an exhortation to all those reading and hearing this letter to remember the predictions made by the apostles. The second application is that Jude is going to tell us until the day of judgment, God's people should devote themselves to dwelling in God's love so that any animosity or disagreements over theology taking place in the church do not cause God's people to become hard-hearted towards one another. Jude knows that allowing the church to become a place of bitterness and contention would be just as bad as allowing all these false teachers to go unchecked. And to ensure that this is not the case, he reminds us that Christians are to build themselves up in the faith, to pray in the Spirit, and to wait eagerly for the Lord's return. And then his third point of application is that Jude Jude reminds us or explains to Christians how we are to treat those who have been deceived by false teachers. Believers are called to grow, uh, I'm sorry, believers are called to show great mercy towards them while being extra cautious that they themselves do not fall into the same kinds of errors as those who have been deceived. Jude is going to give us instructions not only on how to survive in the context of a world where Christian churches are filled with false teachers, but where we as believers can flourish and grow in grace in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So let's look at verses 17 through 19 together. Would you turn there with me and and follow along as we read? He says, But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord, Jesus Christ. They said to you, In the last time there will be scoffers, following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, Worldly people devoid of the spirit. Now, the New Testament is filled with warnings to the church about false prophets and false teachers. And Jude starts off this section of scripture by saying, you must remember, beloved. Now, why is he telling us that? Because for us, it can be very discouraging to see false teachers in the midst of our churches to look around us and know that the truth of the gospel is being twisted and distorted. 
But Jude is reminding us to not be discouraged by this. That it's something that we should even expect. And because of that, we're able to prepare our hearts and minds to stand watch against these sorts of teachings. In verse 9, he goes on to give some further descriptions of what these false teachers are like. Now, if you were there uh, three weeks ago, uh, Jude really laid out what the characteristics of a false teacher are. But here in verse 19, he's going to give us yet kind of a little summary, another few descriptive words to describe these false teachers. He says this. He says, they are ones who cause divisions. They are worldly-minded and they're devoid of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm going to concentrate on that first one, but but let me say a few things first. Uh, The worldly-mindedness. These false teachers present themselves as super spiritual people, people that you would be drawn to as spiritual leaders even. But actually, they're people who are consumed with the things of the world. Many of the largest churches in America today are devoted to health and wealth teachings. The idea that God wants us to be healthy and wealthy, and he wants us to have the things of the world. There are churches that are going after that as hard as they can. And even though Paul tells us in Colossians 3, 2, to set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth, These churches deceive their followers by pointing them away from the truth of God's word and to the things of the world, to things that are perishing. Now notice also that we're told that these false teachers are devoid of the spirit. They don't have the true gift of the Holy Spirit. They claim to be filled with the spirit. And yet Jude says that they're devoid of the spirit. The fruit of the spirit isn't apparent in their lives. They make much of their supposed gifts of the Holy Spirit, but but the actual fruit that is supposed to come from that isn't there. And again, Jude reminds us in those first 17 verses that these people living lives of immorality and and who are self-focused and self-indulgent aren't to be trusted as teachers of the gospel because they're not pointing people to Christ and the truth of his word. But notice especially this last thing. He says, they are the ones who cause division. Now, I want to zero in on that because in every generation, it seems like those who are seeking to be faithful to the word of God, to hold fast to the biblical Christian doctrines that have been handed down over the generations. Those are the people that are accused of being divisive by those who bring innovation and man-made opinion into the lives of the church. But the people who are bringing these innovations, they present themselves as winsome, as open-minded, seeking to liberate us from the narrow-mindedness of those who want to hold fast to the truth of God's word. And I want you to note what Jude says. He says, it's not those who are holding fast to the truth that cause division. It's those who bring their own human-invented imaginations and opinions and attempt to put them on the church that are causing divisions. And that's important for us to know as well as we try to identify who these false teachers are. 
Those who stand on the truth of God's word, who are pointing you to the gospel of Jesus, they're not the ones who are dividing the church. It is those who have departed from the truth and who are trying to bring in these new ideas that are dividers. And yet Jude is reminding us to not be surprised or discouraged by the presence of these false teachers. You don't have to turn on TV and see those teachers on there and throw up your hands and say, oh, well, the church is a mess. What do we do? We're not to forget what God's word says. Because this is exactly what Jesus told us would happen. So he's telling us, church, remember first the word of God. Cling to the word of God. Stand firm on the truth of the gospel. Let's look at verses 20 and 21. He says, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Jude exhorts us to keep ourselves in the love of God, not only to cultivate love to God in our souls, but also to live in the sphere of God's love for us to dwell on it, to delight in it, to draw on it, to be cheered by it. When you are awash in the sense of God's grace and love for you, you are not vulnerable to the false teacher's pitch. The Christian who knows the love of God in a real and tangible way, the, create, the Christian who appreciates the love of God as it's manifested in the gift of Jesus Christ, the costly gift of his own son. Those who know that love of God are not vulnerable to any false teacher's sales pitches. Now, I remember one time picking up the phone and being accosted by a telemarketer. You've probably had this occur. And this guy was trying to sell me a credit card. And here, here was his sales pitch. He says, we're going to give you a credit card and it'll be a, a great rate, 3.99%. And, and you can consolidate. Don't worry. We'll give you $15,000 on your credit line, and you'll be able to get all your credit card debts consolidated in one place. Just think of all the money you'll save. And my answer to him was simple. I don't need that. He said, wait, wait a minute. Just think about all the money, if you, if you save monthly, if you put all your debts into this one card, you'll save hundreds every single month. And I said, but I don't need that. I don't have any credit card debt. And, and he didn't have anything else to say at that point because his entire pitch was dependent upon me having debt that I needed to consolidate. And without that, he had nothing to offer me. And it's the same principle for a Christian who knows the real, true love of God. What does a false teacher have to offer a Christian who is filled and overcome with the love of God? What exactly is it that these teachers can give you that is greater than that? I have the gospel of the Most High God the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am a son or daughter of the Most High. 
and I've been brought into his family as a child. I've been given the precious gift of eternal life. What is it exactly that these teachers can offer me to improve my circumstances? Nothing. Because there's nothing greater than that. There's nothing more valuable than that. You see, the Christian who knows the tangible and real love of God is not vulnerable to false teachers' teachings because they can stand firm on the fact that they've already received everything. And finally, notice that he says, Hope, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Isn't that an interesting way that he talks about the second coming of Jesus? He says, wait expectantly for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Just just in the same way that John says at the end of the book of Revelation, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Jude is saying to us as Christians, this is how we should live every day. With an expectancy. Waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Are you waiting expectantly, anxiously? Why why does he speak that way? Well, the only way you could ever wait for the second coming anxiously is if you're waiting for it in the mercy of Jesus Christ. Because if you are not a follower of Christ, the second coming is the last thing that you want to have happen. But if you have experienced the grace and the mercy of our Lord, it's the thing that you wait for above all other things every day. It's the blessed hope. And Jude is saying, Christian, wait. Wait with expectation, anxiously. Cultivate that hope in your heart. Long for it day by day, the return of Christ. What do you do to resist these false teachers? You grow. You grow in doctrine. You grow in prayer. You grow in your experience of the love of God. And you grow in hope. And that nourishing experiencing of doctrine, prayer, and the love of God and hope gives us strength to resist the wiles of these false teachers. It gives us the ability to stand firm on the truth of God's word without swaying one way or the other. Now let's look at 22 and 23 with me. He says, And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now Jude is giving us a little bit of instruction on what mercy is supposed to look like. He says, remember, then grow, and now show mercy. And he's giving us instructions about how our attitudes are impacted by these false teachers. He's telling us that as Christians, we are to deal with these false doctrines and these erring brothers who who follow after these teachers wisely and mercifully. And he has three different categories of people in verses 22 and 23. 
In verse 22, he talks about having mercy on those who have doubts, who are struggling with their faith. In verse 23, he talks about another group uh, that we need to save from the fire, to snatch them away. And then at the end of verse 23, he talks about another group, those that we should have mercy on with fear. Now he's talking to you and I about how to deal with the doubters, those who have been duped, and the devotees to these false teachers. Now let me explain that. First, the doubters. That is, these are people who have been confused or confronted with false teachers and are kind of dancing with it a little bit. They haven't bought it hook, line, and sinker, but they've been confused by it. And this happens pretty often within the church. How are we to deal with one another when we have these doubts and struggles? Jude is reminding us that we are to deal with each other mercifully. Not to be harsh, but to deal with one another in mercy. Wisely, compassionately, and to have mercy on those who are doubting. To love them through that fear, that failure, that struggle, and to point them back to the truth of the gospel. Now, now what about the second group, the group that's been duped? Now, they, they've actually bought into the lies of these false teachers. They've bought into it, not even maybe realizing what they've bought. And they've been duped. And how is Jude telling us to deal with these people? He says, urgently and directly. Snatch them out of the fire. Save them. Pull them out of it. This group has already committed itself to these false teachings. They've been misled. And we need to deal with them urgently and directly. Save them by snatching them out of the fire. And then there's this third group, this one that you'd look at and you'd say, ah, they're probably too far gone. They're so far into it that there's probably no turning back. And and what does Jude say about this group? He says, have mercy on them with fear. They seem like they're gone, but we're still called to have pity on them. And a godly fear. He's not calling us to associate with them. He says, hate even the garment polluted by the flesh. But there's still a call to mercy because of the great divine mercy that's been given to us through the Lord. You know, one of my absolute favorite scenes in the Lord of the Rings trilogy is is one at the beginning of, of the first book. And there's this scene where uh, Gandalf the wizard is talking with Frodo. And they're talking about Frodo's uncle Bilbo, who had not slain Gollum, one of the enemies in the story. And Frodo says to Gandalf, it's a pity Bilbo didn't kill him when he had the chance. And Gandalf responds, pity? It's a It was pity that stayed Bilbo's hand. Many that live deserve death, and some that die deserve life. Can you give it to them, Frodo? 
Gandalf goes on to say, do not be too eager to deal out death and judgment. Even the very wise cannot see all ends. He concludes that dialogue by saying, the pity of Bilbo may rule the fate of many. And if you know the story, that's exactly what happens in the end. The mercy of Bilbo to that wretched creature Gollum ends up saving the day at the end of the story. And even though they couldn't see the end, that pity and that mercy for those that seem too far gone, God can do amazing things with that stuff. One of my favorite songs has a line that says, you can't save someone from death, but you can love them while they're dying. You and I don't have any ability to save anyone. That job belongs to God alone. But we ought to respond to God's mercy by becoming loving and merciful ourselves. Jesus told us that blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And, and one way for us to test our understanding of God's mercy is to look at your life and see how you treat other sinners. How do you respond when you encounter a homeless person or a drug addict or a drunk? Or maybe it's a coworker or a family member or maybe someone in the church. Usually our response to these people is impatience, unkindness, anger, disagreement. We want to prove to them that they are wrong and we are right. And we wonder why they just can't get their act together and figure things out like we have. And really that attitude is nothing but pride. Well, certainly God holds sinners responsible for their sins. But he also reaches out to them in mercy and extends the hand of grace to them in their times of need. If you really understand the doctrine of God's sovereign mercy, you will not be judgmental or proud. Instead, you will be a messenger of God's mercy. You will be an advocate for his love. And you will patiently walk through the fire to bring others to the truth. Now let's look at verses 24 and 25. He says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now and forever. Amen. Now I want you to pause and appreciate this title of God for just a few moments. Jude calls God Him who is able. It's a reminder of the sheer power of our God. You remember Paul's words in Romans 16. He says, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. That's who our God is. 
He is the one who is able. And again, in Ephesians 3.20, he says, Now to him who is able to do abundantly more than all that we can ask or think, according to the power that works within us. The emphasis is on who God is and, and, and his power. It's so important. And because Judas spent much of his book giving you warnings. He's been calling you to responsibility, to watchfulness, to carefulness, to diligence. And now he's pausing to remind you that ultimately what will keep you until the end is the power of God. Yes, we as the church are called to be watchful and faithful. We are actively called to be fighting the good fight. But in the end, what is it that keeps us from stumbling? Him who is able. God and God alone is our hope and refuge. And what does he keep us from? He is able to keep you from stumbling. That phrase ascribes to God's power our perseverance in the faith. It places our assurance firmly in God's mighty grasp, in his ability alone. And Jude is telling us we live in a world filled with false teachings, and that teaching is designed to cause you to stumble, to fall away, to point you away from Jesus Christ. And Jude is reminding us that it is God who can keep us from stumbling. When we look at our own track record, when we look back on our sinful life, and we remember one sin and fault after another, how can we possibly stand before the Lord? Did you pick that up? That we will stand before the Lord, that God will help us to stand. And yet the psalmist asks us in Psalm 24, he said, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? And who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. When we look at our own lives, our hearts ache at the impurity and the corruption of these sinful bodies. And yet Jude is giving us this promise that God will make you stand in the presence of his glory. Stand. Not groveling, not falling down on your face, but standing before the holy God himself. That has yet to happen in the history of the world. Isaiah, Ezekiel, they go before the Lord and what do they do? They, they cover themselves. They fall on their face in fear and trembling. It's all that they can do to hide themselves from the glory. And yet, Jude is telling us that the work of Jesus Christ in our lives helps us to stand before God's judgment because he gave us his righteousness so we stand blameless in the face of God. I, I can't even really picture what that will be like. Can you? Standing face to face with the holy God of the universe? I, I mean, we can only really imagine fear and trembling at perfect holiness. 
And yet because of this righteousness of Christ imparted to us, we don't stand before the Lord that way. We stand before Him in righteousness. That is an unbelievable thought. And yet how could we possibly think that through our own efforts that we could somehow improve upon the effectiveness of the work of Jesus Christ in our lives? How dare we think we add anything to Christ to help us stand before a holy God? Now again, we, we would think that standing before God Almighty Himself would be the most fearful thing imaginable. And yet we get to stand firm, steadfast on the effectiveness of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, on the gospel message. We stand firm on that. And the work that Jesus Christ did in saving and keeping his people, Jude tells us it brings us before God's glory, not with fear, but with joy, with rejoicing. We get to stand face to face with a holy God and rejoice. Not be destroyed. Not be cast out. But to stand face to face with our maker. The glory of the Lord's work in our lives means that it it doesn't just end here with what he's done for us here and now. There is a future glory that is greater than anything that he has shown us yet. Jude is talking about our glorification. About this great day of judgment that will come. And he's saying on that day, every one of us will stand before the Lord. Not on our own efforts. Not on our own merits. Not even because of our own lovableness, but instead because of God's power working in and through our lives, through Jesus Christ, His Son. He is able to make you stand in the presence of His glory, both blameless and righteous and with great joy. If you think that you're going to stand before God on the last day because of your own faithfulness, you got another thing coming. Jude says we stand before him on the last day, not because of anything of value in us, not even because of anything that God has done in and through us, but because of what God has done for us through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now let's look closely at these first few words of verse 25. He says, to the only God, our Savior, Jude is reminding us of two things here. That God is the only God. That there is only one God. There is no other God except Him. And if you came through those doors this morning, chances are that you believe that there is one God. And you came here hopefully to worship Him. But the challenge is for us to then leave this place and live in that same way. Do we worship the one true God only? Or do we worship our job, our family, our friends, our power or authority, or sex or money? Jude is telling us to worship the one true God 
And it's interesting because he doesn't just call him the only God. He calls him, he calls God the Father our Savior. Jude is reminding us that God the Father is our Savior. Now, that sounds a little strange. But in the New Testament, Jesus Christ is referred to as our Savior probably 15 or 16 times. But also, in the New Testament, they refer to God the Father as our Savior seven or eight times. And that's one of those times here in Jude. He's reminding us that the Father is the source of our salvation. Do you remember what John says in verse 3.16? He says, it's the Father who sends the Son into the world. God so loved the world that He gave His own Son. So Jude's focus is that the love of God the Father brings us that salvation of Jesus Christ. We must look to God the Father for our salvation and trust that as He sent Christ for us, that that sacrifice is all we need. We need to pause and ask ourselves in this moment, are we truly trusting in Jesus Christ as our only Savior? Do we come to God the Father in Jesus' name. Because there is no other name in heaven or on earth by which you may be saved. There is only Jesus. And we must trust in Jesus alone for our salvation. And that means believing in who He is and who He claims to be in the Bible and trusting in Him completely for the forgiveness of our sins alone. Now, at the very end of verse 25, you see Jude giving this beautiful doxology of praise. And he gives it to to the Lord because he is worthy. He says this, he says, To him be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Jude is praising God for his inherent worthiness to be praised. When we praise God, we're not giving Him something that He doesn't already have. We are simply acknowledging something about Him that already is true. Let me say that again. When we praise God, we are not giving Him something that He doesn't already have. We are simply acknowledging something about Him that He already is. We are ascribing to Him the glory that is due His name. We're not giving Him glory. We simply praise Him for His inherent worthiness. And glory refers to God's weightiness, His splendor, His majesty. And our primary goal as His children is to declare that glory. Jude also mentions God's majesty, His kingly status, He mentions God's dominion, His authority, His power, His capacity to rule and reign. But the point is that it's all about God's glory and not ours. It's about God's status being exalted and not ours. It's about God being in control and us recognizing that and not desiring to have that control for ourselves. 
And it's about us acknowledging God's power and not our own. And that truth reminds me of two other truths I want to close with today. And that is simply this, that first, the Bible is simply, first and foremost, a book about God. We should read it because we want to know God. Not because we are looking for practical advice on how to live or how to make our lives better or in order to get the things that we want. We should read it because we want to know our creator, the one true God. And secondly, Jude reminds us that life itself is about God's glory. And everything else should be submissive to that. Which is a call for our lives to glorify the Lord in every way. To bring Him glory and to rearrange our personal priorities to do so. Hard things and evil things happening in this world are not the big problem. Sin has been around for a while. And it's not the biggest problem. God not getting the glory due His name is our biggest problem. And that, for us as believers, should burn close to our hearts, to the core of our being. Our desire, day in and day out, should be to see that the Lord gets the glory due His name. He is already completely glorious. It's an opportunity for us as his children to simply say, yes, Lord, you are. And I want to tell you something. That when you begin to burn for a desire for God to be glorified and for your own circumstances and situations to become displaced and decentralized, what you're going to find is that your concern for his glory means that not only your needs are met, but as you live for His glory, that He becomes the one from whom all blessings flow. Amen? Amen. Let's pray, church. Well, Lord Jesus, Heavenly Father, Holy Spirit, we thank You that You are a good and faithful God. Lord, that as these false teachers wander through our midst, sometimes we recognize them, and Lord, sometimes we don't. And yet you are faithful to us all the more. Lord, and we truly want to be a people who are merciful and loving with one another, that we're patient with one another. As we walk this journey, as we try to figure this stuff out, that we don't pridefully cast down others, but we bring them along with us in grace and in love and in mercy. Help us, Lord, to do that for the sake of your glory, for the unity of your church. Not for our own devices, not not so that we could be proven right, but, Lord, so that you would get all the glory. Lord, you are worthy. You are good. And you are our God. And what can we say but, but we love you? We want to praise you. Help our straying hearts as they wander after the things of this world. May we 
Learn to cast those things aside, to seek after your name, to seek first your kingdom and your glory. We love you, Lord. We thank you for the mercy that you've given to each one of our lives. And it's in Christ's precious name we say, amen.